Growth Pod is brought to you by Genero, a leading growth agency in the Nordics. We interview marketing experts, business leaders, and entrepreneurs to uncover the stories and strategies behind profitable growth. Today's guest is marketing leader Trisha Wiener. Trisha served as global CMO for business to business at HSBC, which is uh, one of the world's largest banks. And uh, until very recently, she was the CMO and executive vice president at Kona. Welcome to the show, Trisha. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I'd love to start just with some background and try to kind of, so for instance, what drew, what drew you into marketing? Um, what was it? Was it kind of, did you already have, always have a passion and interest for it? Or what got you kind of, kind of started? I, I kind of look back on it and think it sort of found me mm. <laughs> rather than, than I went out to find it. So I, I didn't have a passion for it as a sort of teenager. The, the one thing that I still remember today was that I always wanted to set up and run my own business. That was this thing at 14 mm. I had very clearly. So, so I, I knew that I wanted to be in business. I didn't know right. kind of what that shape might take. Um, I, surprisingly studied maths, physics, and chemistry okay. to A-level, which is the sort of highest school uh, exams in, yeah. in the UK, because uh, I was good at those subjects. Um, but they weren't necessarily something that I was really passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I went to uni and chose a very generalist degree, business studies. Mm. Um, and while I was doing that in the first year, we had one marketing module, we had economics and psychology and all of the other modules you have in in uh, business, and I loved it. And mm. and I sort of really started to find a passion for both the sort of psychology mm. of human beings and buying behaviours, mm. uh, but also the sort of impact that you can create in business through marketing. And then in my second year, I selected a higher number of modules that were marketing related. And by I went out to do a year in industry. Mm. Um, I was a sponsored undergrad with an engineering company, actually, a company called British Aerospace. Um, and through that year, I was able to go to lots of different um, functions within the company um, and did a sales and marketing, uh, I guess, uh, internship, a, a sort of three month period mm. um, and really loved that as well. And then basically decided that I wanted to do the Chartered Institute of Marketing, professional qualification, Mm. and came out of uni and thought, that's what I want to do. Um, I then really struggled to get into the industry proper because Mm. um, aerospace, although they offered me and and I went back to work for them straight after uni as a grad, um, they didn't have what I would consider a sort of proper marketing function. Mm. It was more a sort of sales um, and comms uh, function. And so I really wanted to get into the agency world. Um, and I guess one of the things that I that I still remember to this day is I had to be so resilient because you would go for interviews at that point and they were people would be like, well, you've not no experience. I'm mm. like, I can't get experience if you won't give me the chance. Um, yeah. And and that although I had some you know pockets of experience on my CV, that's something that I really had to sort of double down on. And an opportunity came through my network in the end um, to go and work at an agency. 
Um, And it was a boutique agency in London. Um, They were quite um, strong strategically, which was something that I was really interested in. So uh, although I enjoyed kind of promotional marketing and some of the more creative, I guess, sides of marketing, I was also always very interested in much more in the sort of strategic side. Got it. And what made you what made you then want to switch from uh, the agency side to the client side? Was that just a, a good opportunity came up or a yeah. deliberate decision? Um, my, <laughs> I don't know whether there is a podcast called Squiggly Careers, which I which I love. And my career, I always describe as being a squiggly career. <laughs> it mm. was it was um, perhaps not as well planned as it might have been, but it was it's been brilliant, and right. I've really enjoyed the fact that I've I've kind of allowed it to flow. And and actually, the reason that I went client side is that one of my clients when I worked at the marketing partnership was um, a very large. Uh, airport retailer and airport services company called Alpha Airports Group. And I was doing um, a lot of work for them in the agency. They were my one of my biggest clients. And they had an opening mm. um, at a senior marketing manager level and they approached me and I got the job. So I, I actually went client side as a result of um, somebody approaching me for the role. Um, and actually at that point, thoroughly enjoyed client side work. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there for about 18 months. And maybe just going back to that point that I mentioned earlier, I'd always wanted to run my own business. Right. I had set up a business at uni, but decided that I wanted to get some experience before I actually did it proper. And after 18 months at Alpha, I got a call from um, the guy that ran the agency that I had left. Okay. And he said, hey, um, I'm looking to bring in a new partner um, and uh, I'm happy to allocate shareholding. Um, would you be interested? And ultimately, mm. you know, I want to exit the company in sort of four to five years. And so for me at that point, I thought, oh, this is fantastic. It's mm. a very, I guess I wouldn't say um, completely risk-free, but it was yeah. a very effective way. I, I was... Um, offered 25% Mm. shareholding in the company. Um, I was then obviously given this trajectory to go from client services partner uh, through MD and then ultimately to become CEO of the company. Um, And so it was a great opportunity to really run a business. It was still a relatively small business, but we doubled it in size um, twice in the time that I was there um, and brought on a lot of new clients. and I can tell the story of why I then left <laughs> and set Please up on do. my own because maybe that's that's also relevant. So that I, I mean, I I thoroughly enjoyed um, and always had actually the breadth of work that you got right. when you were in an agency. And I think that's the difference. You go very deep yeah. when you're client side because you have to understand, you know, the the detailed workings of the company and what it takes then to be yeah. able to drive growth uh, yeah. from a marketing and comms perspective. I think when you're working in an agency, you just had this wonderful opportunity yeah. to go cross sector. And the businesses, even if you're working within a specific sector like retail, you have such variety across the different retailers that you work in. So I really enjoyed that when I was uh, working at Marketing Partnership. And I did progress through the company and got to a point where I was really running the business as MD and um, had my first child um, and went back to work very quickly and, and continued. And then 
uh, had my daughter. And at that point, um, and actually today, in today's world, I don't think it would happen, but mm. I basically had gone back pretty much full time after yeah. four months. Um, I was working crazily as as you do when you're working in a you know a medium sized business and yeah. um I said look I would be really appreciative if I could do four days in the office I was working mm. in London it was mm. a sort of 45 to an hour commute and um I'd love it if I could just work from home one day because it means that I can actually just have and um it wasn't supported mm. and I just thought do you know what I actually think I can do this for myself now. I was um, just 30. Um, I had some great client contacts. Um, and so I, within six weeks, um, <laughs> exited the business, uh, set up my own company, Intelligent Marketing. Um, and yeah, we started actually with a team of 10 people. Okay. So it was quite a risk from my side. I knew that there were certain clients that were interested in working with us, but there were no, there were no guarantees, obviously, starting yeah. out. Um, and yeah, we doubled the business from year one to two. So we did over a oh. million um, uh, pounds. So I guess about yeah. I don't know, 1.3 million euros first yeah. year. Um, we were very profitable um, and it was fantastic. I mean, I yeah didn't look back, did that for uh, I think seven and a half years. Okay, wow. Um, and would you say, because um, one thing that I kind of wanted to ask you then going relating to your career at HSBC, which were able to climb through the ranks very quickly, and and kind of what were some of the skills that, that allowed you to progress so quickly in all these roles? And for instance, would you say that that experience of being on the business side and having to actually run your own business, you have to manage everything from HR to sales to um, obviously service delivery. Do you think that that made a bit big impact and it kind of contributed to your skill set as opposed to someone who maybe just goes through working purely marketing um, agency or client side. Yeah, I think um, I think the commercial understanding right. that you that I gained um, running my own business was a very pivotal reason for my ability to be able to grow within HSBC. Mm. Um, I, I think. The, the other thing for me, actually, which was very helpful is I was on the business to business side at mm. HSBC. So I ultimately was um, global CMO, as you mentioned, for business to business. So one of the things I was already a client of HSBC. So I knew what it was like to be a business banking customer. Mm. And actually, then when I went into market <laughs> yeah. HSBC from a business banking perspective, I knew where the pitfalls were. Right. So, so, and I, I've always been a great believer, you need to be customer centric mm. to be a really good marketer. You have to understand all facets of the customer journey, but mm. you don't have to be a customer. So mm. this was beneficial that I had been a customer, mm. but I also think it's perfectly possible for me, as I have done in the past, to market mm. Guinness, right? I don't yeah. have to be a, you know, I don't mind Guinness, but it wouldn't be my it wouldn't be my drink of choice. Right. But, but so I think what you've got to be able to do is put yourself into yeah. the position of the customer and really double down on the insight that you can get on actually the drivers of customer behavior. Yeah. So I think that was a big advantage when I first went into HSBC is I had actually been in that position from a business banking perspective. Clearly, I was also looking after corporate banking, mm -hmm. also ultimately then looked after multinationals and what we called our global banking and markets yeah. business. That was an area that I was not 
as familiar with. So I still had to build out my knowledge. So I think the one thing that I would say, in addition to being very customer centric, yeah. is curiosity, like really wanting to and being interested in the business that you are running yeah. and understanding commercially the drivers of that business so that you can then strategically guide the organization. Yeah. Because actually, if all you are doing is looking specifically at marketing activities, then you're not going to be able to have that dialogue at a board meeting or in a, you know, in, in any environment where you will be credible in trying to justify investments um, because you can't demonstrate the value in yeah. terms of what you're doing. Would you say that those kind of three C's, commercial understanding, uh, customer centricity and curiosity are rare among marketers and they tend to focus more on just the marketing itself? I think or it depends. I mean, I, 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 my three C's actually are creativity, hmm. curiosity and commerciality. Right. I'm a big believer in the power of three. So I quite like that. But I would add customer onto that. But that's right. for me is just a... It's a requirement right, right. if you are going to be in in marketing and comms. You, yeah. you just have to be customer centric. Um, but but I, I think those three things are not always evident in all marketers. Mm. Um, I think you can perhaps um, overweight in one area versus another. Yeah. But actually, what I see least of in those three C's is commerciality. Mm, interesting. Can and, you talk about yeah? That? that that for me is the most important, and it's becoming mm. more and more important. I think um, in in reality, marketing historically has been let off mm. quite a lot around actually the value that is being generated from the investments that are being sought, mm. and that has often been because there isn't a way of being able to demonstrate the value, or we can't get yeah. the data from the sales guys or girls, the the, the sales teams. Um, but actually, it's perfectly possible, as we yeah. all know in today's world, and not just using digital media. Hmm. I, I think you know digitization has helped because it does enable performance marketing to actually demonstrate the value that's being created. But actually, you can do it at a much wider level, including brand. You know, mm -hmm. the brand metrics are very available, but yeah. you just need to put the right things in place to be able to get all of the data out to be able to justify the spend. So that that is a, I guess, a marketing lens in which you need to be more commercial. Right. But I think you also need to be able to speak the language of your business and your business colleagues. Um, yeah. And I think this has been a learning for me along the way, particularly in the last role that I've done in an industry that I was not familiar with before yeah. I started, um, is, uh, of course, every industry has its own language. Every industry has its own abbreviations, yeah. <laughs> too many of them. Um, and, you know, that was the same in financial services. But I think in coming to Connor, what was very interesting is Connor has a language all of its own, mm -hmm. um, even in relation to sort of their profit and loss and how. So, so you need to be able to really understand how the business makes money, what the key objectives are, what the drivers of growth are going to be, but not just the drivers of growth in relation to sales, but actually from a profitability perspective. Mm -hmm. Because I think as marketers, we can often get carried away with sales growth, mm -hmm. not understanding that actually we need to focus on specific segments that are more profitable than right. other segments. So that deep understanding of the commercial drivers enables you to be a better marketer because mm -hmm. you can then set the right objectives globally 
mm-hmm. that then drive that growth in the right places. Right. And do you think that that deep understanding, can you actually just, can you learn it just by picking up a book and Googling what EBITDA means? Or do you actually have to go through and get that hands-on experience that you got running your own business? Um, like, let's say young or not even young marketer listening to this and thinking, you know, I don't have this commercial understanding. And clearly it's key to success. Mm-hmm. Um, how would I go about even acquiring that kind of um, knowledge? I think I think there's lots of different ways in which you can do it without necessarily running your own business. Um, for me, and, and I'm a big believer in development plans. So actually every year I sit down and I think about like what it is I want mm. to achieve in the year. And I've been very purposeful about that. So that for me probably is the first thing is if you want to develop commercially, then make sure it is a high priority on your list because otherwise there are always going to be other priorities. You can do it very easily still working within a marketing function, but perhaps you need a mentor or somebody within the organization who you can go and shadow. You know, you might choose to do something to to actually align with somebody in finance or make a choice within your marketing career to go and do something in the planning and ops function Mm -hmm. for a period so that you can really understand the financials of the function. And then you automatically have to connect Mm -hmm. with colleagues in finance and in the business to be able to make sure that you can do your role effectively. So um, the other thing is to actually look at moving into a sales role or moving into a commercial role within the company that you're working in, even for just a short period. You know, it might be that marketing is your passion, but actually there's nothing wrong with doing an 18 month or a a two year. And personally, I think that that actually builds your credibility, but it also then builds your commerciality and and your ability to be able to be more successful in perhaps your chosen career of marketing. I really like that because I feel like that's something that's gone unnoticed. That that kind of just very pragmatic long-term view of like, let's do 18 months here so I can pick up the skill set and this experience and then come back to what I really want to do. But I feel like people, maybe in younger generations or, or younger people, they are so focused on each step needs to be further along the line. You're so f- afraid of like going backward or right. seem to be going backward. So you're not able to make those, those investments that are really good long-term with a good long-term payoff. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think uh, your career is never linear. Hmm. I, I don't, and I don't think it should be. You know, I describe mine as squiggly. Um, but actually, I don't think there is anything wrong with stepping to the side for a period. Mm-hmm. And actually, if I had my time again, and this is something that um, I didn't do early enough in my career at HSBC, yeah. I should have gone into a risk function for a period, which is right. like as far away for me as in terms of anything that I would ever perhaps want to do for a long-term career, but it would have enabled me to get into business leadership, not just mm. perhaps marketing leadership, but actually business leadership roles at HSBC, right. which if you, it's not impossible to still do it, right. but if you haven't got that risk understanding, it's very difficult to then be going out and lending money, as for you sure. can imagine. Yeah. So, so I think understanding the things that that perhaps drivers of success for you, but not leaving it too late and not being afraid to take a sideways step or or sometimes even, you know, to go and do something that that might um, put you out of your comfort zone and be very different and mightn't be with a 
you know, a very specific future end goal in mind. But yeah. just go do it for a period and, and see if it works. Yeah, and I feel like especially with uh, with the world changing so quickly and it's it's always hard, it's impossible to predict the future or even our own future or how we're going to develop and what things we'll find interesting. It seems really foolish to kind of have this very specific goal as opposed to just jumping on opportunities as they kind of come up. Yeah. Um, speaking of squiggly careers, the jump from HSBC banking in Hong Kong to elevators <laughs> in Finland, what was that like? Um. It was it was hard. Yeah. Was well, what hard. was the hard the culture or no the the, the culture was fantastic. I have to say the, the the culture at Connor is amazing, and I was feel felt very sort of welcomed from the minute that I arrived. I think I hadn't fully anticipated just the scale of change, mm. you know. Um, and I'd been at HSBC for eleven years. I had moved about every eighteen months into new roles, so mm. I'd changed my role a lot and changed country. Mm. But I think the constant was the organisation and yeah. understanding financial services. So yeah. um, when I then moved to Finland, I, I always describe it: I changed company, I changed industry, and I changed country, mm. and. Um, I, I would never have thought fin of Finland as a place that I would work. It, it was it was about as far away from my sort of uh, consciousness as as it could have been. So when we then came here, you know, I I knew a little bit about the culture, but I hadn't visited Finland at all right. before I, I started going through this process uh, to to start at Connor. So we'd visited just for a weekend, but we then moved in the middle of COVID in January. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Um, and arrived and actually couldn't leave the apartment for three days because oh, we yeah. had to be quarantined for three days. Um, so I think COVID added an even more complex layer right. to starting because for the first um, six months, we were we were fortunate and Connor in that I could still go into head office. Right. So we had a 50% rule in terms of uh, only 50% of people could be in the office in, in that period. But I was able to at least meet most of my you know colleagues from the executive board I was able to meet my team um, mm -hmm. so that was helpful but I couldn't travel you yeah. know Connor operates in 60 plus countries so the fact that you are sort of stuck in a head office you know you're doing a global role yeah. in head office but you actually can't get out to meet anybody whether that's customers you know technicians team that was something that was quite limiting and it, yeah. it wasn't until the I think it was September October that I was then able to get out and about. Um, okay. So, uh, and you know, a new industry is is hard. It's um, it just it just takes time. And I think, as I was saying before, the understanding the language of that industry, um, the different facets of the business. You know, this is a complex, large organization, and so you have to be able to take the time both to understand the products, the solutions, the different customer types, actually how the businesses run, how the businesses run in large countries versus small countries. So there is a huge amount of learning. Um, yeah. And it was, it, I would say it was enjoyable, but it was exhausting. And mm -hmm. alongside that, you're also having to understand how to navigate yeah. a completely different organization yeah. of scale. And, and China, is uh, you know was the biggest business and actually i didn't even get to china in my plus two and a half years at connor mm. because of covid yeah. so you could only start traveling again to china latter in fact early 
yeah. this year, sort of February, March time. Um, and even then it was quite complicated because there were hardly any flights. So, you know, there, there were even, sort of throughout the time I was there, there were still some things, whether that was COVID related yeah. um, or whether it was just as a consequence of being new into an organization, you're constantly learning as yeah. you go. Uh, you touched upon a couple of things that I think are really interesting because you are one of the very few people who have actually been working on this kind of global marketing level for these massive marketing leading companies. And so I think for a lot of people, it's kind of like this very mysterious thing that you don't really understand how marketing is done on that level. And so I'd love to kind of a little bit uh, peel back the, the curtain or whatever you say. Um, for, for instance, when you came to Kone, like you said, I mean, so many products, so many different market segments and markets and different ways of selling and different customers at segments, all of those things. How did you go about trying to figure out well, how should we even do the marketing? Like what, how can we even come up with a coherent global strategy or should we even for when it comes to marketing? Because it's so massively complex. How do you even go yeah. about such a, such a task? I think um, the first thing I did was to spend time just understanding how things worked mm. already, because I think, and and we didn't have clarity actually mm. uh, around the full function, and it was marketing and comms, so it was all uh, um, uh, corporate communications, internal communications, and also um, supporting with IR. So so it was um, quite considerable in terms yeah. of the breadth, um, and then the. Very variation in terms of maturity across the yeah. countries was significant. Right. Um, and marketing was not something that had been invested in. We had a very strong corporate comms function, and that was very well understood. I think possibly more because of the internal comms need than perhaps the external comms. That wasn't as, as mature as perhaps it should have been. So I, I, I think this is always really important. I, I spent time meeting yeah. virtually all of our teams from around the world. We we did not have, and I was just starting to say this, clarity actually in terms of who was in marketing and comms and who wasn't. Mm. So it was it was down to the level of actually even just understanding um, at, as a first point, actually who the teams were yeah. and where they were and actually what they were doing. Um, and then we also needed to look at the leadership team because the leadership team was not clearly aligned to how the business was being run. So that was one of the first things that I did was to really look at the operating model globally um, and understand actually how we could support the organization and try to mirror it as best as possible with marketing and comms support at an area level and then at a country level. Um, and I think that then meant once we had the leadership team in place, they were then able to really do a full audit of what we were doing, where we felt that we were, you know, top of our game and we were really mm. market leading and other areas where we had gaps and we needed to double down and, and perhaps invest either in different skills and capabilities um, or in, in perhaps some technology and, you mm. know. So, so that was where we started. And I think in answering your question around how you run a function across an organization of this size, for me, as a global team, you're literally looking to sort of set the ambition, mm. be clear about the purpose, but most importantly, the value that we will bring, because that mm. was the bit that was missing. Marketing and comms was not valued mm. to the extent that I think it should have been. Yeah. And so that was really something. And this is something we got onto perhaps a little bit 
later than we should have done. Mm. But what we did is we went through and we said, actually, what are the key pillars of value that we are driving? And how can we then map KPIs, key performance indices against those and ladder that up? So at a group level, when I go into the executive board, I can actually say, this is the value mm -hmm. that we are bringing. And I'm delighted we got there. Got it. And would you say that's that's kind of typical from just what you've seen in general is that marketing is not really aligned with the rest of the let's say the other functions or or even with the overall corporate strategy or with the management team and would would it take like some a leader who understands both marketing and the commercial side to can kind of bridge a gap talk with the cfo and the ceo and get get everyone yeah i kind think of pulling it, in the same that, direction? that um is for me it's really important that that mm. happens um and i think particularly with a very sales-led organization mm. i think it's even more important um because it's not marketing it should never be marketing for marketing's sake but i think in some larger organizations there's more freedom Hmm. Well, there has been historically for marketing functions to do yeah. what they do and for that not to be so closely connected to sales. Yeah. I, I think that's changed. I, don't, I can't say it's changing. I think that's changed. Um, so there is always a requirement now to be able to show, right. you know, what the investment, because otherwise the investment can go somewhere else. Right. There's, there's many, there's too many priorities right. at the moment. You know, you said it before, change is so fast yeah. um, and actually the one thing that won't change is change it's just yeah. going to get faster and faster so this ability to be quite agile and to understand what is important in the moment um, and and there has to be you know a mix of sort of long-term investments and, and short-term investments but for yeah. me the really important thing is that you set that strategy you are really clear actually directionally where you want to go but then you can also have the sort of agility through and we used a, a quarterly um, planning and prioritization process so right. we would have a three to five year long-term view we would have a, an annual plan but we would prioritize quarterly so that if something had changed in that period yeah. Or if business colleagues wanted us to refocus, then we were able to do that. And that enabled us to set a framework globally for what we were doing. But, you know, I, I talk about all of this. It sounds like it was perfect and it was all working. <laughs> it wasn't. There were there right. were still huge amounts of yeah. potential um, to really make that machine work, you know, even more effectively. Right. But I think, I mean, I think you make a really good point is that even though it is so complex, you have all these different moving parts, if you can just align it back to the business. Um, that's a really good starting point. But you also talked about the importance of long-term versus short-term. And have you found that it's a challenge as a marketer to defend long-term investments? Because we can show some kind of ROI, we can show projections, but ultimately it's gonna be based on, well, I have two questions. And number one, how do you go about justifying those investments that you feel are really important in, for instance, brand, and that you know over time will contribute to the company's success? And how, what, what do you think about the role of judgment? Just like the marketing leader, someone who spent decades doing something, saying, hey, I know that our brand is weak. I, I know it because I've talked to a lot of customers. And I know that if we strengthen our brand, we're gonna our salespeople are going to do a much better job. I can't show you the numbers yet, but I know it's true. So trust my judgment on this. Like, What do you think about those two? Is that? Um, I think um, 
it is it, it's really difficult to get that balance right and the temptation and the way in which marketing functions are driven is much more around performance right now right. so i for me i think it's really important that as a you know group cmo you are fighting rightly for the long term mm. that it can't be only the long term clearly you need to get the right balance um and the way i have always looked at it is around sort of 60% ideally 60% on more long term investments okay. and about 40 on short term the reality it's the, the other way around right. if not even more so yeah. I, I think the temptation is always 70 80 percent on the sort of performance because we can see that it's immediate yeah. and i think particularly in a high change environment the temptation for everybody is to go for short-term wins because you need, you know, you need to make your quarter, mm. and and actually, if business is not, you know, at where it needs to be in one area or market, the temptation is you double down in another, and you really push mm. to get sales in that other area. So you are driven much more for a short to a short termist solutions. But yeah. I I think it's incumbent upon us to make sure that you've got the right balance. You know, customer metrics as well, I would say, not just brand, but actually you're investing in uh, customer surveys right. so that you can actually bring the insight to the business so you can be developing products and solutions for the long term that are actually going to be right and are going to solve problems of the future for, right. for customers. Um, but it's a battle and, and there are no, uh, I, I think there's there's no silver bullet in terms of the metrics that you can use for those longer term investments. There is an element of, um, I, I certainly think there are ways in which you can put measurements in place, but they're not really the metrics that the business want because right, yeah. <laughs> it's not sales. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can provide what I've always described as sort of marketing metrics that right. reassure us that it's actually hitting the right audiences, you're getting the right sort of, uh, uh, I guess, coverage that you're looking for. But actually, you know, that's great, but it's not the hard dollars. Um, and so making sure that you've at least got something is better than nothing. Yeah. But then you do really have to fight much harder for those investments. I think I've also been quite lucky in that rarely in my career has the marketing budget been micromanaged by anybody mm -hmm. else. I think it's always really important that it's transparent, yeah. that you can show exactly what the investments are and why you are making the decisions as a function that you are. Yeah. But actually, I've been fortunate that we've had the freedom then to really guide the business on where we should be investing right. um, and for what reason. So, but if I perhaps then argue it the other way, do I think certainly in recent times we've been able to invest enough in the long term? No. Mm. needed to invest more. But that, again, is because of the external environment probably more than anything else. Got it. And would you say that this is a potentially huge competitive advantage for companies um, who are able to, because alignment on, let's say, the board level, to invest in long term, like this is a potentially huge opportunity for them? Yes, I do. And what do you think about the role of judgment in this age of... <laughs> Massive data collection, everything can be measured, tracked, A-B tested. I think it still has a place. Mm. I think it still has a place. Um, I think you do need to be objective and you do need to use data. But I mean, some of the most creative campaigns and solutions come from nowhere. It, you yeah. know, It's not data that has enabled somebody to create an mm. Uber. Yeah. As, as an example, or a Netflix, um, I, I think uh, clearly creativity plays a big role. And often you don't have the data to go alongside 
a hunch and, a, and, yeah. and an idea. Um, I think you also need bravery. Yeah. I think that's the other thing is actually sometimes you might have some of the data, but you won't have all of it and you actually need to be brave. Um, and some of the things that I'm probably most proud of in my career are the moments when we've been really brave mm. and highly creative. And yeah. those have created global conversations that have really enabled the brand to yeah. stand up and have a point of view. Yeah. Um, and as a result of that, gained huge traction. I think that's really, really interesting because I've, I've been thinking about the way I see it, the, the limiting factor for in building a great brand is courage. It's not information or knowledge because everyone has access pretty much the same data, but it's a person who can actually, or the team who can actually um, make those courageous bets and think long-term, I feel like. And that's why courage is always going to be in short supply. And so great brands are always going to be in short supply. I think there's always an opportunity to build those really great, great brands. Um, yeah, so, so many things I would love to to continue talking about. I think we're, we're almost out of time. So one, one kind of final question. Um, you've seen a lot of changes in marketing and you've seen from a global perspective um, what what's happening. Um, is there any area that makes you particularly excited about any changes or any kind of, yeah, any, any areas that you're paying attention to uh, in terms of just marketing and branding in general? It probably won't surprise you, but I think AI mm -hmm. is the, um, is the one that sort of scares me and excites me in, in equal measure. Right. Um, and the other is sustainability. Mm. Um, because I think we as marketers have a really important role alongside many other colleagues to start to transform organizations so that they are focused on net zero mm. sooner than perhaps we're focused right now. Um, and this is a particular passion of, of mine. It has been mm. for many, many years. Um, and not just actually in the sort of environmental side, the, the social part of it, I think is equally important. Right. And social is more important from a brand perspective, right. not because you're doing it, to be able to, I guess, promote it as part of your brand, but you're doing it because it's the right thing to do for local communities and you're doing it because it's the right thing to do for your company. Right. But actually your brand gets a very positive halo effect from doing those things as well. So I, I would strongly hope that marketing has a voice at the table around ESG um, and the sorts of things that we should be doing to build new products and solutions and services that are actually more sustainable mm. than the ones that we perhaps have today and mm. looking at circularity and looking at ways that companies can do things differently. Because ultimately, I don't believe that consumers will create all of the pull. I think they'll no. create some of it, but I think it's incumbent upon businesses and investors actually to really start to drive this change. And I think marketing does have an important role in that. Yeah, I, I think that kind of speaks to a problem that we typically have in Finland, which is Finnish companies do a lot of good work when it comes to quality and sustainability, but it's the actual talking about it and explaining it, which is where we <laughs> have some um, improvements to make. There's potential there, There's potential. for sure. There are some phenomenal Finnish brands that I only mm. discovered when I came here. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we're, we're uh, well, it's good to frame it as potential. Um, so thank you so much, Trisha, for coming on. It's been a a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, if people want to follow what you're doing, is LinkedIn the best? Yeah, I think so. LinkedIn. I'm not great on Twitter or X. <laughs> um, no, much better. I'm, I'm, yeah, on okay. LinkedIn and on Instagram as well. Yeah. Like I said, thank you so much for taking time and uh, all the best. Best of luck in your uh, future endeavors. Thank you so much. It's been great. Really enjoyed it. 
Thank you for listening. You can find all episodes of The Growth Pod on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts.